time of year. And we're struck by the chorus of the first song, Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. And that's what we want to do. And we do that ultimately when we listen to His Word with hearts set to obey, set to respond to Him with the affections of our hearts and give Him all of our lives for He has purchased them and He is worthy of them. Let's come to Him first in prayer and then we'll open His Word. Our God, we worship You. We respond to You and who You are and have revealed Yourself to be in all of Your glory and most magnificently in the glory of Your work of redemption through Your own dear and beloved Son who united Himself to humanity. You, our Lord, who walked among us in perfect righteousness, demonstrating a perfect life of love to God and love to neighbor, who went to the cross to bear our sin, to take the burden of our guilt, the consequences of our iniquity on Yourself as our substitute, and then went into the grave and rose three days later, defeating death, our great enemy. Rising again that we might have life in Your name and by the Spirit. And it is as Your children purchased by Your own blood, by the sovereign plan of the Father, that we come this morning to hear You speak to us through Your written Word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our mind. Give us ears to hear that we might rejoice in the glory of our Savior. We ask this from you in the precious and matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, it is good to be back with everyone this morning as we've been away for several weeks, or I've at least been away for several weeks, and it's always a joy to be back. We miss you, or I miss you uh, tremendously. Trish always gets on to me, by the, for the, way, the way, for that. I say we, and she's always going, who is with you? And I have to remind her of our fellowship with the Trinity, and, uh, but she's not convinced. She still thinks I'm a bit crazy. But nonetheless, I'm glad to be back with you, and I certainly missed uh, being with everyone. And what a wonderful season and time of year to come back and to rejoice in the glory of all that God has done for us in Christ the Savior. He is our joy year-round, but we do have this season that we set aside uniquely and particularly to remember that great event of Christ uniting Himself to humanity, or the Son of God uniting Himself to humanity for our salvation. Now Jesus Christ is by far then the most amazing, the most influential, and the most significant person that has ever walked the face of the world, or the earth. The history of the world pivots and it hinges on His appearing, the events of His life, and more significantly on the reality of His death and His resurrection for men. Now it's not surprising that He would be so significant considering the reality of His person. The very testimony of Scripture, the very faith of the church throughout the ages has been the proclamation that He was and is no less than God the Son through whom all things came into being. Indeed, Scripture declares that we exist through Him. Through Him. So if God walked among us, we would expect that His presence and His appearing would be a pivotal point in the history of man, in the history of His very own creation. 
And we would expect that the significance of this event would not only be his appearing, but the fact that the destiny of all men, the eternal future of all people, rest on our response to him. Now the significant event we recognize and celebrate this season is the moment of the Son of God uniting himself to humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who then delivered this child in the very humble surroundings in the small town of Bethlehem. That is what we celebrate. That is what we see a picture of on postcards. That is what we set our minds to uniquely focus on at this time of the year. Now, in theological terms, this uniting of the Son of God to humanity is referred to as, you know it, the Incarnation. The Incarnation. This comes from a Latin term which is defined in this way, and I quote, meaning, speaking of incarnation, in flesh. The incarnation defines the act wherein the eternal God, the Son, took to himself an additional nature, humanity, through the virgin birth. By that act, Christ did not cease to be God, but remains forever fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. End quote. That is the incarnation, the incarnation of the Son of God. Now we could spend months on this single topic and not even begin to exhaust the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of all there is to consider and understand in this momentous reality. But we are going to take two weeks and we're going to cover what we can and we're going to do so under three particular headings and these are listed in your bulletin first is the problem of the incarnation and the need to defend the reality of God uniting himself to humanity against the errors of those who would deny it second we will consider the person of the incarnation that he is the God man in the one person of Christ And thirdly, we will consider then the purposes of the Incarnation. That He revealed the invisible God, redeemed fallen man, and brought us into fellowship with the Godhead. Now we're going to look at the first of these this morning and begin the second one and then finish it uh, the third next week. Let's begin then by considering the problem of the Incarnation. Guarding against error. Now, while the Incarnation can be both defined and defended from the pages of Scripture, it is ultimately a mystery. We are entering into realms that are beyond the capacity of our natural and our human minds to understand. Paul confessed this as much in 1 Timothy 3.16 when he said this, Great is the mystery of godliness. And he begins then by saying, He who was revealed in the flesh. It is a mystery. And it is a great mystery. And it is in this area of mystery that Satan so often finds fodder for his tricks of deception. For misleading. As Peter warned, it is in those areas where things are hard to understand that the untaught and the unstable distort in 2 Peter 3.16. And so it was that after the appearing of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel after the coming of the Holy Spirit, that Satan wasted no time in seeking to confuse the reality of the person of Christ. 
And this is always his most effective means of attack. Satan's greatest weapon in his arsenal is not the persecution of the church, as we well know. As Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, persecution tends to strengthen and to grow the church. That's not his greatest tactic. His greatest tactic of destroying the reality of the gospel and the worship of the one true God is through error. And sadly, this error often comes to those who purport to be two true teachers in the church of God. Let me just remind you of Paul's own warning in Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 29. And here you know he's speaking to the elders of Ephesus, warning them of those things that will come to them upon his departure. He says this in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage Wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so it was. Even during the time of the apostles and soon after their departure, that these savage wolves, as Paul calls them, came in under the influence of the spirit of demons, the spirit of Antichrist, to attack the nature of Christ, which is to attack the very nature of God Himself. Listen to the warnings of the Apostle John in his epistle, 1 John. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, he says this. Just listen as I read. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess... Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. In 2 John, second little letter of this apostle, verse 7, he says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And what is the heart then of their deception? It is this, Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and this is the Antichrist. So very early, even during the life and the time of the apostles, there was deception entering in and threatening the knowledge of Christ among His people in the church. And while it is difficult to know exactly what error John is writing against, it is clear that it related to a right understanding of the Incarnation. A right understanding of the Incarnation. Thus the reality of both Jesus' humanity and His deity in the one person of Christ. Now in all likelihood, John is defending against some early forms of what would later come to be known as Gnosticism. Now, a basic tenet of Gnosticism was that flesh, that physical part of man, that physical part of our humanity is evil, is bad, is corrupt, while the spirit, the spiritual part of man, that immaterial part of man, is good. And so because of this teaching, they rejected the idea that God, who is pure spirit, could unite himself really and fully to humanity. Now, there were variations of this teaching, two of which were, one, Jesus was only a man whom God entered later at the baptism of John. This is the era of adoptionism. It is to say that Jesus was merely a man like any other man. And then at the baptism of John, the Spirit of God came upon him for a time, thus making him the Son of God. 
Some would also claim that this same spirit left him while he was suffering on the cross because it would be impossible in their teaching for God to suffer. A second form of this, in one of its most extreme forms, even denied that he ever truly possessed a human body. And this is an ancient error known as doceticism. In other words, he only appeared to have a human body. He only appeared to have flesh. He was not truly a man. Now these are very serious errors that were attacking the church of Christ. And I want you to notice first then the consequences of being wrong on this point. The consequences of being wrong about the Incarnation, which is why John addressed it in such serious language. It was a matter of showing whether a person had the Spirit of God or was under the influence of the Spirit of Antichrist. In other words, whether someone was a believer or an unbeliever, whether they were regenerate or unregenerate. And the litmus test was being right about the nature of Christ, the nature of His person. Now again, this kind of error, which was prevalent during the time of the apostles, is an error that continued upon also their departure, and that is no surprise. So by way of our understanding, the threat of a right understanding of the incarnation that faced the early believers, the early church, I want to remind us of several errors that had to be defended by those early defenders of the faith. What were some of the early attacks then of the nature on the nature of Christ in the early church? And I'll mention these briefly. The first one was the attack of modalism, also known as Sabellianism. That is the teacher who promoted this kind of error. And modalism, though it also goes under other names and has slight nuances to it, essentially says this, that there is one God who only appeared at different times, either as the Father, or as the Son, or as the Spirit. In other words, there are not three persons, only one God who shows Himself in different ways at different times and in different places. This denies, then again, the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, making them only different appearances of the same person, singular, of God. This denies the nature of God, and it destroys the atonement. A second error, and one you're probably more familiar with, which was for many centuries, actually, in some form, a threat to the knowledge of Christ. And it is known as Arianism. Arianism which began with a bishop by the name of Arius, thus the name Arianism, although when the battles were really heated up, Arius was actually dead at that point, but it was his followers who were continuing on his teaching that needed to be addressed. Now, Arianism claimed at its heart this, that Christ was a created being, that he was the first of God's creation. He was an ultimately glorious being. He was uh, like no other being. But he was not the uncreated God. He was not eternal God. He was of a similar substance as God, but he was not of the same substance of God. This then denied his deity and made Christ a creature, a created being. Another error that faced the church was that known as Apollinarianism. And this error taught that the one person of Christ had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. And that the mind and spirit of Christ were from the divine nature of the Son of God. In other words, he taught then that he was something less than what it means to be fully human. And it denied his full humanity. 
Another area was known as Nestorianism. And Nestorianism taught that there are two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. And this is very close to the idea of adoptionism, which says that there was the human person of Christ, that then another person, the Son of God, came to reside in the same body. This confused biblical revelation, which always speaks of the one singular person of Jesus Christ. The last one I would mention is known as Eudeacanism. As a, you, know, you, know, uh, you won't be required to spell that correctly. But Eudeacanism claims that Christ had one nature only. That is, that the human and the divine nature combined to make one new nature. In other words, it was something less than fully divine, less than fully God, and it was something less than fully human. It was this uh, third kind of being, as it were, and which then denied both his true humanity and his true deity, causing even a break in the Trinity. For if Christ was something less than God, then God himself, as the three persons, would cease to exist. Now all of these heresies contradict Scripture, the testimony of the church, and eliminate Christ's ability to be the perfect atoning sacrifice and mediator. In other words, the errors that face the church regarding the nature of Christ are not simply theological quibbles. They're not preferences. They get at the very heart of the gospel. If Christ was not fully God, then His death would not be sufficient to atone for the sin of countless millions of people. Nor would His life be sufficient to count for the righteousness of that same number. If Christ were not fully man, then His life and death could not be a substitute for what is required of humanity in obedience to God. Nor would His suffering be what is required of man as a consequence for their sin. In other words, in order to be our Savior, He needs to be both fully God and fully man. Now to correct the various errors that threatened to demote His true glory, the early church then was consumed with setting forth a clear statement about the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. The first of these came around 325 at the Council of Nicaea and it produced what is known as the Nicene Creed, which I'll mention Again, in just a minute. This statement was the first clear statement of Christ's deity, but it lacked the language that was specific enough to guard against some of the errors of modalism or make a distinction between the Father and the Son. And so this led, through many church battles, to a clearer statement in 381 of the Niceno-Constantinople Creed. And that's actually in your bulletin, 381. We won't read that one. We're going to read the 451 Council at Chalcedon. But the Niceno-Constantinople Council clarified the statement regarding Christ and His humanity and added the confession or a clearer confession of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, what's often presented as the Nicene Creed is in reality this Niceno-Constantinopolian Creed. Now the combination of these efforts, however, came in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. This is the standard orthodox statement of the church that has stood the test of time and remained the clearest statement about what the Bible reveals about Jesus Christ. 
Now, before we read this, and we'll read it together, it's important to note that some who deny the inspiration of Scripture and deny the deity of Christ argue that these councils represent the church defining her doctrine. I have been in these discussions before. Maybe you have too. They claim then that it could have gone either way, that it was just the decision of men. It could have said that Christ was God or Christ was not God. We just happened uh, by happenstance almost to end up with our confession of Christ as God. God. However, this is false. The confession of the church was based on the reality of the person of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and the proclamation of the apostles in the New Testament. The reality of the person of Christ as being fully God the Son and fully man and Messiah was the very truth for which many Christians were laying down their lives and dying in the early years of the church. As a matter of fact, one of the earliest inscriptions of pagans mocking Christian worship showed a man on the cross with a donkey's head and with an inscription underneath it that says, Alexamonius worships his God. Because that was the testimony of the church, that the crucified Christ was nonetheless than God, the maker of all things. Indeed, the very reason that Christians were tortured and were put into prison and were put to death in the early years of the church is because they refused to acknowledge the divine testimony of Caesar. In other words, refused to participate in emperor worship and acknowledge him as God because they claimed there was one God only and that who was Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. So the early councils and orthodox statements of doctrines were articulations of the faith of the church since the coming of the Spirit. And this is a very important point for us to understand. The councils were not defining faith, but clarifying and defending it against error. It affirmed the faith of the church and her proclamation of Christ since the beginning of the gospel. Now, one of the uh, most significant of these statements is found in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. Look in your bulletin. It's in a handout. It's in one of those little handouts. And this is the statement. And you can just follow along with me as I read it. And then I'll simplify it afterwards. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In other words, fully possessing the nature of God and fully possessing the nature of man. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, Born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. In other words, they did not blend together, they remained distinct in the person of Christ but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That then became the official statement of the church regarding the nature of Christ. And it is something that was slightly added to as new errors surfaced uh, down the road. But this was essentially the faith and the confession of the church. Now simplified, it simply means this is what they were getting at. That Jesus Christ was fully God and His fullness of deity was in no way compromised by His humanity. It also claims then and guards this truth that Jesus Christ was fully man and His full humanity was in no way compromised by His deity. Again, the theological term for this is known as the hypostatic union. Now this is obviously, there is obviously a great more that could be said about this. But the important point to remember is that this was the testimony of the church. So at best, the theology of the incarnation is the harmonization of three clear teachings of Scripture. And then we will get to Scripture after this. It's namely this. That Jesus Christ is God and fully God. That Jesus Christ is man, a point we'll consider more in more detail next week. And Jesus Christ is the one person, the God-man, the Messiah. And it's necessary to reaffirm and to teach these truths, for the attacks against the person of Christ are just as alive today. For example, the cult of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness are nothing more than revised forms of Arianism teaching that Christ is a great but a created being. The Word of Faith movement has such teachings as to say that Christ is our believer is just as much of the, of the uh, just as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. Kenneth Hagin says that. Gloria Copeland says that we are the Word made flesh, just as Jesus was, and it goes on and on. The point is, is that the error and the confusion confronting the person and the nature of Christ is just as real today. Now to set this in its right context, we have to understand that this is a mind-blowing reality in any age. And it's understandable why men have grappled with it so much and how error could so easily creep in among the people of God. It's far beyond the capacity of our mind to fully comprehend and certainly to invent. And there's nothing in the history of the religions of man that even comes close to being compared to the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. There were certainly mythologies, particularly Roman or Greek mythologies and others, of gods inhabiting people or gods that were basically like superhumans, but this is nothing like the incarnation of the Son of God in the person of Christ. First of all, because those gods were lesser gods, they were not the singular, infinite, eternal, and self-existing God by who by His power spoke all things into existence. Secondly, any similar attributes the mythological God shared with humanity or inhabiting a person is far different than the infinite almighty person who is God the Son uniting himself forever to humanity for our salvation. And thirdly, in none of the so-called mythologies or mythologies did those so-called gods do this to give themselves to suffer in place of the ones they created. In other words, the reality of the incarnation is utterly unique. It is the true revelation of God. Now to understand this, and this is where we'll end it today, 
on this point. To understand the magnitude of this, to understand the weight of it, to understand the fullness of it, to understand the reality of Christ in the manger, we must begin by grasping who it was that became incarnate. In other words, we must begin by understanding His deity. And there's no better passage to start with than in John chapter 1. So go ahead and turn over there. We'll be looking at a few passages just briefly. John chapter 1, words that we're very familiar with, but let's be reminded of them again this morning. Now, as I said, the fact that Jesus Christ is God was the tremendous catalyst of the early church in recognizing the reality of the triunity of God. In other words, that the singular God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this was, again, the testimony of the church and the unified confession of the apostles from the earliest date. That Jesus Christ is God. That He is fully God was an undeniable fact. And yet... To say that was also to say that Jesus Christ was not the Father and nor was he, was he the Spirit. So the monotheism of Judaism, which was correct, was now made to include three persons. This was a mind-blowing reality. You can only imagine the impact that this would have had among those early hearers of this truth. The monotheism of Judaism was now made to include the Father, the Son revealed in Christ, and the Spirit, without in any way compromising that there is only one God. Beloved, we do not worship three gods, we worship one God. And let me, by the way of a footnote here, remind you that this is what distinguishes the true revelation of God from every other false presentation of God. In other words, usually it's said that there are three monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism and Christianity. And yet that is a misleading and a false statement. For Judaism and Islam have essentially what is the ancient error of modalism. But you have, or Arianism, excuse me, that there is only one God and that Christ is just a lesser being, a created being. But in fact, it is only the truth proclaimed in Christ by the testimony of Scripture and Christians that God is fully revealed only in the Father and the Son and the Spirit as three who are one. That is the true testimony of God. And this is how he begins, John does, in his gospel in the opening verse. Read it with me and we'll look at this briefly. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let's note firstly then, that this Word is eternal. That He is eternal. He is the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is repeated three times here, clearly a reference to Christ. The only time that He is distinctly titled, or receives this title, the Word of God in this manner, but it is made implicit here and explicit later that this Word is the one who we know as Christ. Indeed, in verse 14, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace 
and truth, which we'll look at more next week. And the very remainder of the gospel is an unfolding of this reality that this eternal word is the one who united himself to flesh and revealed himself to Israel. He is the Son of God incarnate. Now he begins with the words, in the beginning, in the beginning. That is then the beginning of creation. And these parallel the words of the, indeed the first words of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that time when everything that we see was not, but yet came into being by the creative power and the creative word of God. It is by the breath of His mouth that all of these things came into being. Now one has noted that the study of physics tells us that matter and time and space must all occur together. If there is not matter, there can be no space or time either. In other words, everything that we know as basic to our physical existence came into being at this time. Even time as we know it came into being at creation. Now these are the very opening words of the Bible to establish the fact that God was before creation. He was before the things He brought into being. Therefore He has all authority and all creation is dependent on Him. John here in these opening words of his gospel expands that to include the eternal Word, the one who would become Jesus Christ, or be known as. This then is the eternal Word who was there with God speaking all things into being. Prior to creation being brought into existence, there, John says, was the Word who existed with God. Here marking His distinction from God the Father. By saying with God, it is to say He was in intimate communion and active fellowship with the Father. Marking Him as distinct but equal to the Father. Indeed, He says it directly right after that. And the Word was God. Paul expresses the same idea in Philippians 2.5 when he says, speaking of Christ pre-incarnate, pre-uniting Himself to His humanity, that He existed in the form of God. That means that everything that defines God as God, the Word was that. Everything that makes God God, He fully was that. Both before creation and even at the time and forever of His uniting Himself to humanity. An astounding statement. Jesus alludes to this in John 17.5 when as the incarnate Son He is praying back to the Father and He longs for, as Jesus said, the glory I had with you before the world was. That eternal glory that I shared with you. That eternal communion that I shared with you. That intimate relationship and fellowship that we had before all things came into being. He is the divine person then through whom all things came into being. Indeed, that's what he says in verse 3. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. In him was eternal life as John will unfold to us, and it is in Him that we have life. 
But here, notice then, not only is He eternal, but He is the Creator of all things. There is not one thing that we can set our eyes upon in all of creation or consider that exists apart from the reality of Christ bringing it into existence. And apart from the reality of Christ sustaining it by His own glory and power. Now I want to make this point in just one other text. Turn over to Colossians. Turn over to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Again, another text that you're familiar with. I will remind you of it here. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13, he begins this praise of Christ and of God's work in His Son. In salvation, He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then, in verse 15, he begins this magnificent description of the glory of Christ. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now look back at verse 15. And notice what he says there at the end of the verse. He is the firstborn of all creation. The term there that you might have heard is protokos. Protokos. Now this idea of being firstborn has caused some to struggle. Because it sounds like, well, does that mean then that maybe the Arians were right? And there was a time when Christ was not? And that he was brought into being? Is that what Paul is affirming here? This certainly was one of the texts that they turn to. However, that is precisely the opposite of Paul's point and the testimony of the rest of Scripture. Let me just observe with you two things that Paul is saying and that he is arguing. First, let's notice the term protocos or firstborn. It can refer to chronological birth order. For example, it's used that way in Luke 2.7 when speaking of Mary that she gave birth to her firstborn son. The Christ child was the first child to break the womb of Mary. And, it also, and it's used that way at times, but it often has the idea of preeminence. For example, and I will just read these to you. In Exodus 4.22, obviously in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, this term is used to speak of Israel. He says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, the preeminent of all of the nations of the earth. He was not the first nation, but it was the preeminent nation of all of the earth through whom God would reveal Himself. In Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, speaking of David, again this term, is used in the Greek translation. I shall also make him, speaking of David, firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, David was not the first king. He wasn't even the first king of Israel. But he was the one who would have preeminence. He would have, be the one who was exalted above all other kings and be the forerunner even to the Christ, the Messiah, who was to come. 
Paul is using this term in the same way here. To say he is the firstborn of all creation is to say that he is the preeminent one. He is the one who has all glory and honor and preeminence over all created things. Secondly, note the context. The context prohibits it from being Christ as the first of God's creation. Look at verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The all things here is both the spiritual and the physical world. It is not simply the the moon and the stars and the sun and the clouds and all of those things. It is to say anything that has existence other than God Himself that was brought into being at that point of creation, Christ was the agent of it. Look what He says in verse 16. Both in the heavens, all things were created by Him. In the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. And He's speaking of spiritual realities here. He's not speaking of earthly thrones or dominions. Or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Again, this is contra Arius who said that there was once when he was not. Paul's argument is exactly the opposite and says there never was when he was not and indeed everything that is came into being by him. The Son is the Eternal One. He is the Eternal Son of God. He is God by whom and through whom all things exist and have come into being. This is who He is. Paul's point then is not that Christ was the first of God's creation, but rather that He is preeminent over all creation because He is the one who created all things. And because He is the Lord and Redeemer of His creation. And because those things are true, He is preeminent in honor and glory over it. Christ is then, or the Son of God is the eternal Word, the eternal, uncreated God who brought all things into existence and then, in the glory of glories, united Himself to His own creation for our redemption and His glory. Isaac Watts sought to capture this in an old hymn. He says this, and he's really reflecting in the truth of John chapter 1, verses 1-3. through Ere the blue heavens were stretched abroad, From everlasting was the Word. With God He was, the Word was God, and must divinely be adored. By His power were all things made. By Him supported all things stand. He is the whole creation's head, and angels fly at His command. Archangels leave their high abode to learn new mysteries here and tell the loves of our descending God. The glories of Emmanuel. This is the glory of Christ. This is the glory of the Son of God. Now there's no way that we could exhaust, and particularly not in the few minutes that we have, the testimony of Scripture to the deity of Christ, to the reality that He is eternal God. That Jesus is God is without question in biblical revelation. Now we looked at that just, this just briefly about I think four weeks ago, from Jesus' words to 
the teachers of Israel in Matthew chapter 22, verses 43 through 44. So I'm not going to repeat that information. There we looked primarily at the testimony of the anticipation of this one who was going to be God among his people, the angel of the Lord, the promised child of Isaiah 9, 6, and others, the one who was to come. This morning we're going to look at a few other aspects of this revelation. First, we're going to notice then some direct statements about Christ as the Word. We looked at the first one already, John 1.1. The Word was God. This is a clear statement in the attempts of Jehovah's Witnesses and others to make this a God because it is an anarthus noun. That word simply means that it doesn't have a direct or defi- uh, an article before it, the... Because it is a noun, they sometimes want to translate this as a God. However, this stands on hollow ground grammatically, contextually, and theologically. Indeed, all of the Gospel of John is to affirm the exact opposite truth, and nor do even they translate that consistently. I won't go into those details. Simply to say that the entire testimony of John is that Jesus is equal as the Son to the Father. The summary, the epitome, the climax of John's entire point comes at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 28. You'll remember that the resurrected Christ appeared to his disciples. Not everyone was there, namely Thomas, who doubted, doubting Thomas. Later, he was in the room. Jesus appeared to them. And the overwhelming response of Thomas, who was filled with the magnitude of Christ risen and standing before him, was that As he said to the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God, my God. And there it does have the article, the God. But we read it in translation as my God, my Lord and my God. And Jesus fully receives this worship from Thomas and all men. Indeed, it's required worship to be true faith. This proclamation by Thomas is not only received by Christ, but it is then the culmination of the opening prologue and all that his gospel was designed to establish. And so John says immediately after that, these things were written that you might believe, that you might believe this testimony that Thomas just gave. Romans 9.5. You can turn there if you want. We're going to be flipping around. Romans 9.5. Again, Paul says it, Directly, here in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, speaking of Israel, he nonetheless says this. He says, and he's referring here to the great reality of the promises that were given to them. That they were the ones who were given the promises. They were the ones who were given the covenant and the law and the temple service and the promises. In verse 5, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. That is not a separate statement, God blessed forever, for sending Christ. It is a direct statement regarding the one who is overall, the one who appeared in the flesh, namely Christ, who is God over all. Over all. Hebrews 1.8 does the same thing. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews makes the same affirmation. Here... 
after already saying that he is the radiance of his glory, he is the one through whom the ages were made and sustained that are upheld by the word of his power. After saying these things and exalting Christ above the false worship of angels that was around to some of these to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing, he says this, among other things, referring to the Son. He says in verse 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. The statement is taken from Psalm 45, 6 and is given to declare Christ's glory over the angels and indeed declaring that Christ is the creator of the angels. He is their God. He is their Lord. He is their commander. 2 Peter 1, 1 says this. Keep going back. 2 Peter James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, he opens up his letter in this way. Simon Peter, a bondservant of, and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're linking both those qualities of deity and his work of being Savior with the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, note this, that he is equated with Yahweh in the Old Testament. And we've looked at this briefly last week. Let me remind you of two passages. John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus, in a heated debate with, again, the leaders of Israel, makes this astounding claim. He says to them, In verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Is because they understood exactly what he was saying. He is directly equated with Yahweh of Exodus 3.14. He who identified himself as the covenant-keeping God of Israel, I am that I am, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Indeed, in reality, it was the angel of the Lord who spoke to him and identified himself as I am. Jesus is here saying that I was that one. And again, the statement I am speaks at its very heart of the self-existence of God. A fancy theological term for that is the aseity of God. It simply means this, that God is dependent on none other for His life. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of all things. He alone has life in Himself. He alone is God. Jesus Christ is here saying, I am that one. The one who is speaking to you now. Look at one other statement. If you're in John, you could flip right over to John chapter 12. He says this. Referring back to a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. He says this. Speaking of the reason that these leaders were not submitting to his ministry. Who were seeing the signs that he was performing. But were not responding with faith and worship to Christ. 
He says, this is just like it was with your fathers of old, is his point, the ones that Isaiah referred to back in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, I'm in verse 38, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, and here it is. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. Verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Him there being Christ, the Christ that stood before them and the Christ they were rejecting. He's saying the one you're rejecting and the glory of the one that you are refusing to submit to is the same one whom Isaiah stood in his presence in the great vision that God gave him and declared his glory. Indeed, Isaiah 6.1 says this, when he went into the temple, I saw the Lord, there he uses the term Adonai, high and lifted up. But then in verse 3 of Isaiah 6, he says, the angels fly, flew around this exalted one and proclaimed, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Then astounded at being in the presence of this holy one, Isaiah becomes aware of his sin and he says, Woe to me, for I am undone. He was a man of unclean lips. He lived among a people of unclean lips. And he says this, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. John says what Isaiah saw was Christ before he united himself with humanity. He was and is the God of Israel. Note lastly here that Christ then shares the divine attributes of God. And we will look at these briefly again. You can go back and listen to the message that we did in response to Christ's statement in Matthew 22. And we covered some more of these. First, I'll mention these quickly. Christ is omnipotent. He shares with God all power. This has already been well noted in the fact that he brought all things into being. That he brought all of creation into being. Christ is limitless in his power. Creation was planned by God the Father, spoken, brought into being by Christ the Son, and then activated, in other words, actually carried out by the Spirit of God, the one we see even in the opening chapter of Genesis who hovered over the waters. But it was Christ who was the agent of creation. There was no limit to his power. And therefore, it should not surprise us when we read such things as Philippians 3.21. Listen, speaking of the future resurrection, speaking of what Christ will do, he says, we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. How will He do this? Paul says, He will do this by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. He is unlimited in His power, unlimited in His glory. He is omniscient. In other words, he knows 
all things. This is the omniscient God of Psalm 139 who knows our thoughts before we think them, who knows our every action and every move and every intention before we intend it and before we do it. He is the one whom Peter said, you know all things. You know all things. Why could he say that? Because Peter had understood that he was the Son of God. That he was God. He is omnipresent. He is omnipresent. Listen to the words. We've covered this of Matthew 18. Matthew 18. He says this in the context of church discipline. And here in the context of prayer in light of church discipline. He says in verse 20... For where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. None but God could say that. He says at the end of Matthew, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In verse 20 he says, Teaching them that we're to go out and to teach the nations Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Who could say that but God alone? And indeed, there is a reality to this where His presence is uniquely communicated by the Holy Spirit, but it is only one who is in union with the Spirit, who is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Father, who could participate in that fullness of His ministry. In other words, it has to be God who alone could say that wherever His people are in all of the universe, He is there with them, His presence is with them. This is God. This is God. He is, lastly, immutable. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, He is the same today, and He is the same forever. He does not change. Only God can say that. Only God can say that. And so, beloved, this is the glory of the Incarnation. This is the glory of the Incarnation. That God the Son, the eternal Son of God, became man. And this is an absolutely astounding and a spell-binding truth. And if we at once could grasp the reality of the deity of Christ, then everything else would fall in place. And it is not an overstatement to say that the entire Gospel depends on the reality of Christ being fully God, the Son of God. And if we understood the reality of who it was that united Himself to humanity, then everything else really is no big deal. Idea of miracles? Well, of course He could do miracles. The idea of the atonement? Well, of course He could atone for the sins of the world. The idea of the resurrection? Of course death could not hold Him. The idea of His return and recreating all things? Well, of course, because He is God. He is God. We would expect nothing less from Him who is the eternal God and Creator of all things. Again, it is the central truth of the Christian faith and the revelation of God. Unless we believe that He is, we will die in our sin. Unless we believe that He is all whom He has revealed to be, then we have no Savior. You cannot be wrong about the nature of Christ. You cannot. 
To be wrong about the nature of Christ is to be outside of God's saving grace and is to be dead in sin. But to be right about Christ and to grasp it and to have trusted Him is transforming. It's to understand that the Son united Himself forever to humanity. It was God who walked among us. It was God who revealed Himself through the man Christ Jesus. It was God the Son who suffered at the hands of men. It was God alone who was died on the cross so Paul could say that God purchased the church with His own blood in Acts 20. It was God the Son who suffered at the hands of men and at the hands of the Father for our salvation. It was God the Son who redeemed us, who has forgiven us of our sin and has removed the rebellion of our hearts and put in its place by the Spirit of God, trusting and submissive hearts who love to honor Him and the Father. The errors and the mockers and the rejectors of this truth have always existed and in part, we can understand that because of the staggering implications of its reality. But these things are true. Now next week, we're going to consider the reality of His humanity and the purposes of His coming, which we've only touched on this week. But until then, I would encourage you, and particularly this Christmas season and these days ahead, to meditate on the reality and the wonder of the person of the Son of God uniting Himself to humanity for our own salvation. Consider these things. Meditate on them. Pray to God and adore Him for these truths. Consider what He has done for you and consider your own relationship with Him. Now to close, um, I want to read to you and pray with you the prayer that is on the front of your bulletin. Now in the providence of God and completely separately, Pastor Reardon did the same thing this morning in his opening prayer, reading this prayer, but it is one worth repeating. And I pray now with fresh reminders of the glory of Christ on our hearts that we could pray, echoing these helpful words back to the Father as an expression not of some ancient writer, but of our own hearts and our love and our trust in Christ. Bow with me, and then after this prayer, David will come up and lead us in a closing song. Or Parker. Our Father, You are indeed the source of all good. You are the source of all things. You are the source not only of the physical world, but more importantly, of life, of our life. Not just our physical life, but of our spiritual life, of eternal life, which we have in Your Son and by the Spirit. And what can we render to You for the gift of every gift that you sent your own dear, eternal, and beloved Son, who was begotten, not created, the uncreated one, who is our Redeemer, who is our authoritative representative, who is our surety, our confidence, our substitute. His self-emptying, His self-humbling is incomprehensible to us, and yet our minds long to grasp in it the infinity of your love, and though it is beyond our heart's grasp by your Spirit, we can be brought to wonder ever and ever more in increasing depths of understanding this glory of glories. Herein then is the wonder of wonders that the Son of God descended to us to raise us above. That He was born like us that we through faith and by the Spirit might become like Him. Herein is love. When we could not rise up to Him, He, 
by sovereign grace, drew near to us on wings of grace. Here in His power, when deity and humanity were infinitely apart, when they were separated forever by virtue of our sin, you, Son of God, united yourself to humanity in indissoluble unity, the created united to the created. Here is wisdom. When I was undone, like Isaiah in your presence, with no desire to return to you, with no ability to return to you, no power of intellect to devise a way to recover myself from our sin, you came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost and as a man to die our death and to shed satisfying blood on our behalf to work out a perfect righteousness for us. Take us then in spirit to those shepherds who heard the glorious announcement. Let us hear those same good tidings of great joy. Let us believe and rejoice and praise and adore with them. Let our consciences be cleansed by that cleansing blood of Christ. Let our eyes be lifted up in joy and trust and faith to a Father with whom we have been reconciled. Place us there with the animals to look upon our Redeemer's face and to adore Him. Let us with Simeon Clasp that newborn child to our heart. Embrace him with faith, knowing that he is ours and we are his. What more could you give? And what less could you require? Nothing than all of our lives, affection for you. And to live in a way that your glory is manifest in us. We thank you for the Son. May we worship and adore him. We pray in his most matchless name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. David, thanks.